All right, Romans chapter 8. We are starting so very, very late. So very, very, very late. Uh, And I apologize for that, but some good conversations after Sunday school about assurance. Seth was asking some good questions. I know it's a difficult subject, so good uh, good questions. Oh, and I know we're live on the air. Make sure... uh, I make sure uh, Brandon gets paid back. Okay. All right. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. All right. I just all of a sudden realized I didn't hand Brandon any money who's putting gas in my car so I don't get stranded on the way home. All right. So I'll make sure. I think I got cash in my wallet. So I'll make sure. All right. So Romans, what we're going to do, we're going to be in Romans chapter eight. How we're going to do this since we're already starting so late is we're going to, I'm going to tweak this a little bit. And I'm going to try to just kind of present the issue to you without, I know, I, know, I know people hate when I do this. I'm going to present a problem with no solution. Now, I know what you're saying. What are you saying? Isn't that what you do every week? Okay, yes, I know. It is what I do every week, but hopefully you will see this. I did a 47-minute Bible study exercise on this yesterday for kind of my sermon prep. And today was to really advance that. I'm not going to be able to advance this too much, but I'm going to try to present it in a different way. All right. So let's start this. Okay. Here's what I want you to do. And I, maybe we should probably just do this, but we won't because I'm going to put you on the spot. But I want you to think that on a piece of paper, write out a Christian understanding of suffering. A Christian understanding of suffering. That's what I want you to write on paper. A Christian understanding of suffering. All right? Now, everyone in this room is very familiar with the idea that in this life, there's going to be what? Suffering, right? It may be horrible tragedy, right? Horrible tragedy, or it could be uh, something that may not reach that horrible tragedy area, but it could just filled with difficulty, trial, and irritation. But there is constant problems, pain, and suffering in life, and difficulty in life, right? It can be financial, it can be health, and depending on, where, depending on your job, you either see more of that suffering or you don't. If you're in the medical world, you see that suffering. You see the people with those diagnoses. You see, you find out that they didn't make it. You see that. Or if you're uh, helping people at the end of their life, right? You see, you see how life ends up and it's, it's tragic, you know, especially depending on the situation. Um, if uh, Seth is a fireman, he sees the pain and suffering in life. You see it, you see it. Military, depending on where you're sent, you may see, you may not only see the suffering, you may be inflicting suffering, all right, because we live in a, a messed up world. We know that. Now, here's the thing. Every person on this planet not only experiences pain and suffering, they have some philosophical understanding to try to explain it, right? Everyone does. We would argue that a Christian's understanding of suffering should be what? Well, radically different than every other view, because Seth just said it, it should be based off Scripture. But I wonder how 
scriptural our understanding is on the subject of suffering. Because sometimes you hear Christians say things and you're like, is that really a part of a Christian understanding on suffering? Are you sure? Um, Because it seems like they just grab one little element from the Bible. They're like, oh, there we go. And then they ignore everything else. So I, I, I would, I, I, I'm almost tempted to do this, is have everyone on their piece of paper write down five key elements to a Christian understanding of suffering. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make you do that right now, right? But you really should. Could you write down five key elements to a Christian understanding of suffering? What are five key elements to that understanding? If you can't articulate that, listen, if, if you cannot articulate that, by all means, don't talk to anyone about suffering because you're not giving a Christian worldview. All right? Just stop. Just, just silence, okay? Because the last thing you want to do is you're out there trying to help someone with suffering or trying to give some explanation to suffering that's nonsensical and not biblical, okay? But everyone has the view, and you hear it every day. If someone goes through a difficult time, they say things, right? And a lot of times, what do they rely on? Little cliches, right? Well, there's got to be a purpose behind it. There's, there's got to be a meaning in it. And you know, if, if, if God closes a door, he opens a window, just every other kind of nonsensical, motivational poster garbage that people throw out there that drives me crazy, okay? Uh, because that, to me, that sometimes the way we uh, respond to suffering, suffering or the answer we try to give to suffering, I think in many cases minimizes the suffering that a person is actually enduring, because we, we minimize it because we because I think sometimes I think sometimes we try to uh, comfort other people in their suffering to make us feel better more than than making them feel better because we feel like we need an answer to understand it and guess what guess what you sometimes end up in life with no answers okay and I know you may hate that but that's the that's the that's the way it is all right so we're in Romans chapter eight. We talked about suffering, did we not? Have we not talked about it for two weeks? And what was one of the major elements of that discussion? Suffering and glory are not consecutive, right? Like here's suffering, then there's glory. But we saw that they are what? Intermingled, right? That while we're suffering, there's still an element of glory that we experience and is present, which changes a little perception because sometimes we so see the suffering that we miss the glory, right? So we talked about that. But in the midst of all of that discussion and the way we broke the section down, uh, the way we, we saw that uh, the, the, the section of Scripture is kind of bracketed by two ideas and you've got to take everything in the middle and understand it, how it's bracketed. We Remember we talked about that literary device and all of that. Um, there is a couple of Scriptures here that I am really, 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 really been focusing on. All right? And go down to Romans chapter 8. Let's start in verse 17. All right? I'm going to read the verses, and then we're going to try to just do a little work here, okay? We're not going to go long, because we're already so late that we will be time. If I go with my normal length, well, it'll be 2 in the afternoon before we leave here, okay? So here we go. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Now, remember this text has talked about the Spirit of God being present with us now, right? And remember, there's a lot of discussion about how does that relate to sin, and we've had all of those discussions. Verse 17, and if children, right, we'll go back to verse 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We talked a little bit about this concept this morning and how exactly how that works. Nobody really can explain it. Verse 17, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so, 
B, that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. If we suffer with him, we're going to be glorified together. In other words, if we suffer with him, we're going to be glorified with him. All right. How does that actually play out? All right. Fine. There's a lot there we can work on, but my focus is on the following verses. Are you ready? Thinking caps on? All right. Here we go. For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creatures, the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subject the same in hope. Now, that may sound wordy. It may sound okay. I think I know what it's saying. And then you may want to just move on. But I think there is enough there that is worthy of a lot of work and a lot of consideration. And we're going to start working on some of this. All right. So are you ready? First, I'm going to give you a very basic outline here of one that I have kind of developed. And uh, we'll, we'll build from there. Okay. First thing, look at verse 18. Everybody see verse 18? I'll read it again. Verse 18 reads, For I reckon the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Right? Verse 18. If you were to give a simple summary outline title for verse 18, what would you possibly call it? I'm giving you the ability to work on this. Verse 18 is right in front of you. Okay. Now, that's, that's, joy is a future glory, okay? Just future glory is good, but what did Stephen leave out from the verse? Ah, very good, okay. You got to get both, right? You got to get both. You got to get both, okay? So let's call verse 18, or you just put number one in your outline, present suffering, future glory, verse 18. Present suffering, future glory. Now, we already talked about the idea that glory is already present, but here clearly puts a present future tense to them. Does it not? Yes? There's present suffering, but there's going to be future glory. Now, that's important, right? Because this immediately changes the Christian perception of suffering. One of the key elements in a Christian understanding of suffering would be what? Present suffering... Future glory, so I need to understand the present suffering in light of what? That future glory. And the future glory far surpasses the present suffering, so I endure the present suffering knowing that the ultimate end is glory. Right? That changes my perception and my understanding of suffering a thousandfold, but that promise cannot be handed to anyone and everyone, right? An unbeliever doesn't have the hope of Future glory, all right? Just keep that. I think everybody can see that. That that one's pretty simple. That one was easy, right? Yes? Okay, everybody should say, yeah, we don't even need you. Okay, all right, gotcha, all right. Verse 19. I'll read it. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. All right. What's a simple summary statement for your outline for verse 19?
Okay? I got eager waiting. What else do I got back there? Okay, expectations. Creation. And you're going with as short a title as possible. Okay. <laughs> Anybody else? Oh, good. Okay, good job. Robert caught the future aspect there. But there's two aspects there. There's a present and future in verse 19 as well. What? In verse 18, we have what? Present suffering and future glory. In 19, we have what's the present? The waiting, okay, and the future revealing manifestation. See, there you go. And remember, what do we try to do in our outlines? What do, we, what do you not want to do in your outline? No interpretation, just observation, right? Any, any outline that's an interpretation is what kind of an outline? Horrible one. That's the, that's the nice way of saying it. It's garbage, okay? It's, it's garbage, right? You don't want to do that. Why? Why do you never want your inter- outline to be an interpretation? Because you're interpreting before you are observing, and if your interpreting precedes your observing, then your interpretation is what? Wrong. Wrong. Everybody say that with me. If your interpretation precedes your observation, wrong. That's why it's very difficult to just look at a scripture and say, this is what it means. No, you got to go spend about 40 hours doing what? Observing it before you can interpret it. The out, what's, the, an out, what's the purpose of an outline? To observe. It's a tool of observation. An outline is a tool of observation because you can break it down. You can create the skeleton and in the skeleton you can go, okay, okay, I see it. Now, what do you do? You put, you put flesh on the skeleton, but you've got to do the observation. Everybody got that? So, verse 18 is what? Present suffering, future glory. Verse 19 is what? Present waiting and future manifestation. I think it's a good word. Revelation, revealing. All right, you got that? All right. We got one more word. Or one more, or one more uh, verse. Verse 20. Let's read it. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. I think I said subject, or subject is subjected the same in hope. I think I misread it the first time. All right. Verse 20. What do we have here? What do we have in verse 20? (laughs) Look at Emma. Emma. Say that out loud, Emma. Uh, present vanity, future hope. Present vanity, future hope. In my, in my, in my outline is so complicated, right? In my, complicated, my outlines are so childish that people would mock them because they think they're stupid, but I, I purposely make them simple because where, what are they simply doing? Observing what's there. And what do I typically try to do? Use the words from the text. Why? I'm not interpreting. And secondly... Guess what words are always better than my words? Yes, see, there you go. I'm done. My job is done here. I'm leaving. Emma is going to become your pastor, okay? And that's a joke online. That's a joke online. Okay, 
Okay, it's a joke online. Okay, we, we, I spent all, what, the other day talking about egalitarianism. Uh, I, I talked about all of those, so everyone calm down. Okay, but, no, that, that's, that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing here. Okay, so, let's go through this again. We got three verses, 18, 19, and 20. 18, we were saying it, is, it deals with what subject? Right? Present suffering, future glory. Verse 19, present waiting, future manifestation. Verse 20, present vanity, future hope. All right, that's, now, when you look at that, does that offer you really an interpretation of those verses? No, it does not. But it gives you what? A structure that there is an interesting Present, future, present, future, present, future. So we got to understand this. So let's go back and we'll see if, how far we can get. All right? Everybody ready? That would bring us to which verse? Verse 18. All right. So let's look. Let's read verse 18 again. Uh, no, we're only doing these three. We're only doing these three. Okay. All right. All right. We're doing these three. All right. So everybody was going to the next verse. I understand. But that brings us back to the first verse because we, now we've got to do what? We got to work on interpretation because we've done a little bit of observation. Now, we're going to do more observation, obviously, but at least want you to have the basic idea of what's going on here. All right. So, I re- for I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. All right. First thing this passage does is it acknowledges what? Present reality. Right? It acknowledges the present reality. And that acknowledgement is very important because the Bible, and this is very important, the Bible, even though it's a religious text, does not deny the present reality of pain, suffering, sickness, and death. It acknowledges it. Doesn't it? So in other words, Christians, we don't live in some fairy tale land that all of this stuff immediately goes away. It is present. It is there. So, as a Christian, what should be a key element in your understanding of suffering? An understanding that no matter how godly you are, no matter how many times you come to church, no matter how much money you give, no matter how many sins you avoid, that what are you still going to encounter? Suffering. Right? You've got to have that down. You've got to understand that. Because we almost enter, because you'll hear Christians almost say this. Well, I'm trying to follow God. I'm trying to serve God. So why am I? If you, if you came into Christianity thinking that because you follow God, you get some pass on suffering. I'm sorry. You are, you were lied to, lied to, and lied to, or you deceived yourself into thinking that way. It acknowledges the reality. And I love the fact that it acknowledges the reality. But with that reality, it says what? For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It acknowledges, it acknowledges the reality of suffering. Well, what's the second thing it does? It speaks of the of, it speaks of something we are not to do. Right? We, what, we cannot compare the present suffering to the future glory. Why can we not compare it? Because the glory far surpasses the suffering. We can't go, well, okay, I'm suffering, but I wonder if the glory is really worth all of this suffering. Well, guess what? Even if you throw out Christianity, guess what you still get? Suffering. 
Christianity or no Christianity, you get suffering. So there, there's no comparison. Is that what he says? There's no comparison. Am I reading it correctly? The, pre- the suffering of the present time are not worthy to be compared. There is no comparison. There is no comparison. I, I put it this way in my notes. This glory, which we look for, surpasses a thousand times the misery of our afflictions. The glory which we look for surpasses a thousand times the misery of our afflictions. Now, I don't know where I came across that quote, but it was written, I had it written down, so I can't give it the source, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a good quote, is it not? So, so what, what is this? To, it, it acknowledges suffering, but it tells us don't compare the two, in a sense. I don't compare them, because comparison is almost I'm trying to figure out what. Well, it's bad, but is it really going to be? No. What I have to realize is, listen, this encourages me to do what? To live in the midst of suffering in light of the coming glory. Do you see the difference? Comparing is I'm trying to like, okay, wait, wait, okay, wait. No, no, there's no comparison. I just live in light of that glory. What does it mean to live light in the glory and present suffering? Well, what's, uh, what's one thing that advertisers love to do? Um, a lot of people love to do this in a lot of advertisement. When they're trying to get you to, to either buy something, use something that may cause some discomfort, may, may be unpleasant, they do the before and after. Right? And what are you comparing? Well, look at, you know, look, at, look at what this could turn into. Well, then it's worth whatever I have to endure, right? This is what, you know, oh, this diet is horrible, but look at what I can look like. So you compare it, right? Right, right. But, but I'm saying that the two can't, they can't, they don't compare. Does that make sense? So I'm saying, I'm not going to try to do the comparison more than I'm going to just try to live in light of it. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get us away. The comparison, I understand that there's an aspect of that which we do do. I, I understand that. What I'm trying to say is that there is no comparison. So if there isn't a comparison, making a comparison where there is no comparison seems like a waste of time. So instead of doing the comparing, comparing I just live my life in light of it. To live my life in light of it means... I am focused on what, what should overshoot. Think of this. Think of suffering as darkness. And think of the future glory as light. If I live in light of the light, what do I, then do I focus on the darkness? Have you ever been in a dark room and you can, there's only one source of light? Where do you look for? The light, right? You don't look around at the darkness. You look towards the light so that you can see where you're going, right? We live in light of that suffering or we live in light of that glory so that the suffering becomes more and more what? Diminished. Doesn't become our focus. Does not become our preoccupation. Does not become the guiding... The darkness is not the guiding principle. The light is the guiding principle, right? That's what guides you, the light, not the darkness. Correct? If we're in this room and there's no light here and it's pitch black and there's one little light coming from the, that back door back there, what are we going to focus? Where are we going to go? Is everybody going to be like, oh, 
Look at the darkness. Look at the darkness. Or are you just going to stand there and go, look at the darkness compared to that light? No. You're going you're gonna to focus and in a sense live in that light, right? Because you're going to use that moment of life to go where? Follow that light. That's where you're going to focus. That's what, that's what I'm trying to say about living in light of it. Think of suffering as darkness and think of glory as light. Right? So, what do we have in this text so far? What, what do we call this verse? Present suffering, future glory. What does verse 18 give us so far? No, it gives us a reality. Right? It acknowledges the reality of suffering. Secondly, it tells us, in a sense, don't compare... Understand what I'm saying. I understand a comparison is being made. I'm just saying that the comparison idea is there is no comparison. If there is no comparison, then don't make a comparison. But third, I'm adding the idea of living in light of it. Because I don't want you to say, well, don't compare it. That means I don't even... No, you're going to acknowledge the difference. But instead of sitting there just trying to compare the difference, live in light of it. Right? Does that make sense? Live in light of it. Now, the verse says one more thing. We're not going to get very far. I wanted to get to the next verse, all right? For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, you may not think that's significant right now, but it's going to become very significant in trying to interpret verse 19 and 20, all right? So, What do we mean by in us? Now, first, there's going to be a translation issue. Not all of them are going to say in us. uh, Say it again, Seth. To us. It's going to be revealed to us. What does the NIV say? Uh, In us. us. King James says in us. There's in us, to us. There's there's, uh, different uh, understandings here about how we should understand this or how it should be translated. I don't think we need to get caught up in a translation issue here. The point is the future glory has ve- is very much connected to whom? Us and the us here would be whom? Those who have the Spirit of God, if you le- read the preceding verses. We have the Spirit of God and there's going to be a future glory that is revealed to us and revealed in us. What do you think that's referencing? What would be another theological term? Ah, there we go. That this is referencing somehow our glorification. Now, our glorification deals with... We, now here, that glorification in us, to us, the idea is, is that we're suffering. And one of the reasons we're suffering, not only in a fallen world, but we have what? Okay, a, a, a body that is corrupted and under the curse of the fall, which does what? Get disease, sick, breaks down, has problems, has weaknesses. There can be mental issues, physical issues. We all, we all have experienced that, right? And a lot of our suffering comes from the body. Yes, it does it not. So this future glory has something to do with us. It's revealed to us and through us and the glorification this future glory has something to do with our glorification. So, please note, it's the idea of not just, I'm on earth, it's all bad, there's heaven. It's no, I'm here in this earth suffering in this body, 
But the future glory that I'm living in light in is that this body is going to be what? Glorified. It's going to be completely changed. Does that make sense? It's going to be completely changed. Now, let's, let's, uh, I'm going to read from one commentary. Um, that shall be disclosed to us or, or in us or of which we shall be partakers in heaven. The usual representation of heaven is that of glory, splendor, magnificence, or light. Uh, by this, therefore, Christians may be sustained. Therefore, suffering may seem great, but they should remember that they are nothing in compar- comparison with future glory. They are nothing in degree, for these are light compared with their eternal weight of glory, which they shall work out. They are nothing in duration, For these sufferings are but for a moment, but the glory shall be eternal. These will soon pass away, but the glory shall never become dim or diminished. It will increase and expand forever. All right? The bottom line is, we are presently suffering, but there is a future glory that will be revealed in us and to us in our glorification. That glorification involves not only uh, the change of us, but that glorification ultimately would be connected, possibly, ultimately, to a new heaven and a new earth. But just keep the us in mind. All right? Everybody got that? All right. Those are the basic elements to that verse. Anything? Think I've missed anything? All right. Now, verse 19. All right. Here we go. For the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. Please note at the end of that, what do you have? What do you have at the end of verse 19 that we just talked about at the end of verse 18? Verse 18, to be revealed to us or in us, and verse 19 refers to the manifestation or the revealing of what? Sons of God, which are us. Interesting, right? Yes? Us at the end. Remember why I said that focus on that 18 part, the end of that verse 18? Because now this has something to do with us. But what, now verse 19 is interesting though, okay? So, so let's work, work through this. So we got a waiting, right? Everybody agree we have a waiting going on in verse 19? Right? In fact, let me read verse 19 in a number of translations so that you can hear it. For the creation waits in eager expectation. New Living Translation. For all creation is waiting eagerly. ESV. For the creation waits with eager longing. Berean Study Bible. The the creation waits in eager expectation. Berean Literal Bible. For the earnest expectation, like the King James, and you get the idea. So the earnest expectation or the idea of waiting. All right, so let's, let's go through verse 19. What did we call verse 19? Present waiting and future revelation. All right. So here's the first thing I want you to write down about verse 19. What is waiting? Creation is doing the waiting. Right now, the King James says creature, but it's it's referring to the creation. All right. Creation is waiting. It's longing. It's waiting. Isn't that weird? Creation is waiting. Well, why would it be waiting? Why would it be eagerly waiting? Why would it be eagerly anticipating something? Not, no, not according to this verse. Okay. Well, not, not according to the verse. 
Remember the verse, the verse, the verse, the verse, the verse. Okay. okay. No. Well, right now we're figuring out, we figure out first the who. Who is waiting? Creation. Now, we could ask the question, what, what is it waiting for? Let's state it that way. What is it waiting for? For the sons of God to be revealed. That's bizarre. Now, how are the sons of God revealed? Well, in salvation, okay, if, if it is so, if let's go with salvation first, right? Let's go with salvation. If we go with salvation, that becomes kind of weird, right? So you got like creations out there waiting to see if anyone walks out of this church a Christian? That, 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 that doesn't, well, think about it. Let's think about this. What would make creation waiting for something? What, 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 what would have creation waiting for something? Well, it, creation would be waiting because what is happening, remember what's this whole context about? Suffering. There we go. Creation suffers and groans, right? That could be the motivation for the waiting. So the fact that someone becomes a Christian and is revealed today doesn't do anything for that creation suffering, yes? Right? Doesn't do anything. Agreed? Right? But a future manifestation of the sons of God would be connected with what? Christ's return. Christ return. What else? Our glorification. Right? What else? There we go. There we go. Right? Clearly, at some point, our glorification is connected with, now we could get into a whole eschatological argument here of how this works but at some point when the sons of God when it's truly we are revealed in our glory in other words in the glorified state that would be associated with a new heavens and a new earth so my glorification is connected ultimately with the glorification of what the heavens and the earth, and why would creation be waiting for that day? Because when it's revealed who the sons of God are, well, then it's it's over, right? That's it. That's the fullness of the sons of God. That's everyone who's going to be saved who's going to be saved. This is the end. Bring in the new heavens and the new earth. And what happens with the new heavens and the new earth? The suffering goes away, right? The The end of death. Pain. Sin, disease, plague. Now, now, now we're getting, now we're getting somewhere. All right. So I want you to see that creation waits for this revelation of 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 us being revealed. It's very, it's very interesting the way that works. The, the, so creation is waiting, and guess what? Waiting entails. Not new man in our glorification. Yes, it could be it related to that. But think about when, we, when you wait for something, is waiting pleasant? Right? That waiting, if you're waiting and longing, this eager anticipation for something, and it's being delayed, and it's being delayed, and it's being, being delayed, that's kind of attached to an idea of suffering, right? I'm not saying serious suffering, but it's an idea of suffering. You want it to go, you want it to be fixed. You want it to be fixed, right? You want it to be fixed. If... 
If, if your arm it gets cut almost off and you're laying there in pain and you're, you're bleeding out and you're waiting for the fire department to show up and then you see them across the street getting a burrito at Allsup's and you're laying there screaming like, could you hurry up? Okay, right? And you're like, put the burrito down. Okay, that you are going to be eagerly awaiting for some morphine, right? You're going to be eagerly awaiting because like, first of all, you probably just want the pain to go away before you want the bleeding to stop, right? I know they're going to stop the bleeding, but you're going to want stop the pain, yes? Well, if creation is eagerly awaiting that, they're waiting because it, creation, and, and again, it's using a figurative language. It's wanting the suffering to go away, but it can't go away until what? to the sons of God are revealed. All right? Interesting how that's connected. Remember verse 18? Where's the glory going to be revealed? In us, to us. What is creation waiting? For that glory to be revealed in us, through us, because when it's manifested what we are, then creation is going to encounter that change. See it? How that works? All right. Next. Now, we we can just barely mention the next one. I'll have to stop. For the creature was made subject to vanity. Let's stop right there. Creation was made subject to vanity. Anybody got a different word for vanity? Frustration. Anybody got a different word? Futility. Vanity. Frustration. Futility. What was made subject? Creation. Now you see why it's waiting. Creation has become what? No, it, think of it. It's, it's a futile, vain, frustrating existence of suffering, of pain, of just never-ending cycles, of just more and more pain. And it's been subjected to that. Everybody see that? It's been subjected to futility, frustration. Okay, now this, um, what, what do we know about this being subjected to it? It was not according to what? No, 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 read the text, the text, the text, the text, the text. Not by creation's will. Creation didn't desire this subjection to futility. Creation did not choose this idea of being frustrated and vain. It did, it did not choose this. Creation did not choose it. So someone subjected it to it. Here's your question. Who did the subjecting? Well, the, the text refers to the person who did the subjecting uh, as what? Used as a pronoun. Him. Hang on. How many Bibles here have him capitalized and how many of the Bibles don't have him capitalized? Not? The, is one capitalized? Okay, not. Okay. If we look at a bunch of English translations, guess what you're going to find? Some will use the word one and they'll capitalize one. Some will use the word him and capitalize the H. By capitalizing the one or the him, that would seem to imply who did the subjecting of creation to futility? God. If you don't capitalize it, some will argue that the him there is not a reference to God. It's a reference to someone else subjecting creation to futility. 
So what are your two options here? If the, the hymn is to be capitalized and it's God, then God, not, not according to the will of, the, of creation, but God himself subjected creation to futility. God did it. Now, that, there's some philosophical, I see some, some possible like, okay, well, wh- wait, what would that mean? Why would God subject creation to futility? Why? Right? Why would he do it? If it's not God who did it, then what would be the other possible answer of the him there who did it? Oh, someone said Satan. That's an interesting, that's an interesting discussion. Okay, I don't, that's interesting. I don't know where that would put us theologically. That would be a little troubling. Okay, but that's interesting. Okay, well, it would be another him there. Adam. Okay, very good. All right, so let's, let's put three options. Let's put three options. Who did, who subjected creation to futility? Either God, Adam, I don't think Satan works, but just put Satan down because I never even considered that as a possibility. And you know what? I like to hear possibilities and then struggle with them. Now, you see the ramifications here. Here's creation. Now you see why creation's waiting, right? Now you see why creation's waiting? It's longing for him because it's subjected to what? Frustration, futility, emptiness, meaninglessness. That's, that's Ecclesiastes. What is life under the sun? Meaningless, right? But guess what? Did creation choose it? Did creation raise its hand one day and go, hey, we would like to be subjected to futility? No, it did not. So who subjected it? Three options. God, man, Satan. What are the theological implications of each one? I'm not going to give you the answer right now because we're out of time. Okay? What are the phil- no, what are, let me state it this way. What are the theological implications to your understanding of suffering? There. Now, ding, 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 ding. That is why you come to church because that's gold right there. Okay? Do I? I don't think Job answered any questions, okay? All Job did was ask some questions and then... Okay. Oh, the book? Now, the book of Job, yeah. Now, there, there, yeah, there's a lot. I think this connected here a little bit, okay? Um, but you're left with... I want you to think. So I want you to think about each one when you leave here today. I want you to think about this. Okay, if God subjected creation to futility, frustration, and vanity... What does that teach? What, how, how should that impact my understanding of suffering? If Adam subjected creation to it, how does that impact my view of suffering? If Satan did it, how does that impact my view of suffering? I want you to really think about each three. All right? I really, and I'm going to ask you at some point, probably next Sunday, what did you come up with? All right? Because you really, you've got to answer this. Not everyone agrees on the, who the hymn is. I want to make sure you understand that. That's why some translation, and even the translators don't agree. Some capitalize the hymn or the one. Some don't. Should it be capitalized? Should it not be capitalized? Well, you've, I've given you three options. I want you to think about it. Okay, if God subjected creation to futility and frustration and not according to its will, what does that teach me about suffering? And if Adam did it, what does that teach me? And if Satan did it, what does that teach me about suffering? All right?
Now, I stopped the verse. Now, I know I've probably got people online go, but, 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 but read the rest of the... Shh. Don't mess up my, my... Don't mess up what I'm trying to do here, okay? Oh, Paul. Oh, it'd be nice if Paul was a clear, more clear oh, throughout the entire book of Romans, okay? All right? I still don't understand how chapter 8 relates to chapter 7, and obviously no other Christian can either, okay? All right? So, everybody got that? There's your work. All right. We're going to stop. We'll pray. All right. I want to repeat everything I've said, but I'll just stop. All right. Lord God, we come before you this morning. This is a very, very important passage of Scripture because everyone in this room, they have suffered. They may be suffering now. And if they're not now, they will be in the future. Until we can get a correct understanding of suffering, then we will not handle ourselves in the midst of suffering in the way which would glorify you. Give us the right understanding of suffering so that we can endure suffering in a God-glorifying way. And forgive us for the times that we haven't. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...